potpourri, a periodical. I like a long email from an old friend. I started writing this as a newsletter in April of 2020, and now I'm going to record it uh, because it's rather long and might be easier to listen to while you're walking or doing dishes or driving to work. Hope you enjoy. Uh, every issue, I'll share a poem, a picture, some prose, and a puzzle. Uh, the picture and the puzzle may be hard to capture here on the podcast, but uh, at least you'll get a reading of the poem and the prose. Poem, Ascent. When I am collared and leashed by your hand, the air is alive. Its fragrant histories river through me from each source, each piss and splendor. My black nostrils tremble with the weightless encumbrance of every prior paw and patron, each signature held forever in the moment when they stepped into our dancing library, each becoming what you would call a truth, a fact of the world that exists beyond you, even as you hold it within you. Sometimes I sense you still believe we can visit someone or some place and somehow not yield, but in our library there is no visiting, there is only belonging. That is truth as it can only be known, which is to say, breathe together, lived with you. The picture in this issue is of my friend Ida with my other friend Ruby. Ida is a human being and Ruby is a dog. Prose. We become selves only by mirroring in ourselves the actions of others, who we want to be like. We are, in this very real, material way, made of each other. And so we exist not alone, boundaries secured, working out economic exchanges between ourselves and those who we might dare to love, but always somewhere in between. Kristen Dombeck, The Selfishness of Others. Dear Jojo, even though you grew up on Ursulines, in my mind you are both a New Yorker and a New Orleanian. That much love for a place makes you at least an honorary ante of it. T.T. Joe. So I thought of you when I watched Governor Cuomo's briefing a couple Fridays ago. That man moved and charmed me. I heard sentiments about America and New York and neighborhoods and home that I have not heard on a political stage that big in a while. It felt to me like one version of federalism at its best. Cuomo's voice and dress and mannerisms all shout, New York, to me. The circles with the hands, the pinned yellow tie, his interwoven gruffness and tenderness. He said, forget about that and this damn virus, and compared seizing ventilators from upstate hospitals to borrowing a drill from a neighbor. I will give you back the drill, and if I don't, I will pay you for a new drill. How do you lose? He compared a homemade mask to the bandana he wears while riding his motorcycle. He was at home behind that microphone, the chosen representative of the place he was born, the place he grew up, the place his father led, a place you have studied and loved and introduced me to. But it wasn't parochial or jingoistic. Hometown pride was his gateway to nationwide empathy. He told the story of people showing up in New York from around the country after 9-11, unasked, to work in hospitals and clear debris or just stand on a corner with tools until someone pointed out a need. He mapped out a strategy for shifting doctors and equipment from one city in crisis to the next. He talked about sharing and love and finding light on the other side of darkness. It felt, in its own flinty way, 
like a public health illustration of one of my favorite apocryphal quotes from G.W. Carver. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong, because someday in your life, you will have been all of these. I've thought about Carver a lot in recent days, about the man himself and the school named after him in the Ninth Ward, where I taught history and learned it and met you. You know the cartoonish, hauled out every February outline of his story. Carver, born a slave in Missouri, was a famous and celebrated inventor by the time of his passing in 1943. And because you've had to put up with me, you know a lot of the details from Christine Vela's biography of him too. Those details shook me when I read them for the first time. Yes, he invented prodigiously. He also taught generously, science and painting and standing room only Sunday school. He was bisexual. He served as a massage therapist in his senior years, restoring life and energy in the limbs of others, even as his own body withered. He was deeply committed to a place, likely to his own detriment. He never left Tuskegee, even though Booker T. Washington, founder and president, denied him funding and supplies repeatedly and ignored his advice, even when that advice was sound and necessary. For example, or prevent the spread of cholera among Tuskegee students due to unsanitary sewerage practices on campus. He did most of his experiments armed with little more than a $10 microscope that had been given to him as a gift, like his meager supply of suit coats, which he wore to ruin. The peanut products he invented represented a tremendous achievement, but those were byproducts of his mission. The peanut was a protean crop that could yield shampoo, oil, ink, butter, and more. But it was also an agent of transformation, a weapon in a gentle and stepwise war on poverty. Peanuts gave life back to barren earth. The nitrogen they deposited awakened exhausted soil that had been ravaged, like the people who tilled it, by King Cotton. For decades, with a little hand-drawn wagon rolling behind him, Carver carried insights like this one from his humble lab to even humbler sharecropped farms and the black people who tended them. Carver's story came back to mind because I have recently been reading about Thomas Edison, his contemporary, and in some ways his antithesis. Edison was born into poverty, was taught for a few years by his mother at his kitchen table, and then with cornball humor and Carveresque disregard for fashion, proceeded to invent the telephone receiver, phonograph, light bulb, movie camera, and the word hello, among literally hundreds of other devices, some of which were so novel that science writers at the time lacked a vocabulary to adequately describe them. Edison was a patent fiend and a serial entrepreneur. He founded General Electric. He jealously fought battles against would-be competitors in countries around the world. He became a millionaire many times over. He slept in his workshop as much as at home and was an intermittent scold and funder of his six children, whom he often denied use of the family name for their own ventures. It was bad for the brand. He was mostly indifferent to those who died in explosions and accidents in his lab, mine, and workshops. Edison was a blitzscaler at the heart and helm of a Gilded Age Silicon Valley. As we face a virus that can make a home, and then a husk of any of us, I ask myself how to honor Carver's ethos as we live in a world built on Edison's. How to tend what is fragile, plain, and priceless, and pull my wagon of it to the next farm over, while we seek a global technological answer to the current crisis. How to do the common things in an uncommon way, so that scale to the extent it is achieved, occurs through the carrying forward of people and places worth preserving, rather than just the profitable disruption of the past.
I wonder this as, in my own career right now, I write more often with the alphabet of capital, risk, strategy, leverage, than that of commitment, ritual, sharing, love. I wonder if writing with both is like putting a python and a rat together in a cage and hoping for the best. Or, if I'm being a dumb romantic, frequent problem, and should celebrate both capacities, think of them like the toxic liquids that Carver and Edison handled, dangerous alone and in the wrong admixture, but when combined well, capable of turning sound into max, sound into wax, metal into light, and peanuts into hope. What is that mixture? Your experiments with it are some of the most interesting I know of. Peace Corps, IRC, city planning, all laboratories of love and scale. One of the most compelling characters in Phil Knight's memoir about the startup years at Nike is Oregon itself. The trees, the rain, the rival schools, the local banks, the running culture germinating under Bill Bowerman's firm hand. You feel soaked with the hard-bitten peculiarity and dense beauty of the place in 1962, and you realize after many chapters that Nike is the fruit of Eugene. Phil Knight, child of Oregon and its wet forests and respectability politics, built a corporate empire. Fast forward 30 to 40 years, and a shoe dog of another kind splashes onto the scene. Tony Shea, Zappos.com founder. Tony, too, is the architect of a corporate empire and has become the foster parent of downtown Las Vegas. Through his zany, unassuming largesse, the once desolate part of the Vegas core beyond the Strip is now peppered with pop-up shops and music venues and a rehab motel and Burning Man-bound sculptures. It feels like Main Street on Molly. Which is to say, it feels like walking through the headquarters of Shea's company, which is located in Vegas's old city hall. This Las Vegas is the fruit of Zappos.com. There's a symmetry in these cherry-picked case studies. The city once gave rise to the company. Now it's the other way around. Today, an entrepreneur is empowered to build their own utopia, which in Tony's case I find delightful, like the guy himself, when I got to meet him and drink his fernet and pet his llama in October of 2019. Home can be a manufactured thing, a network, a scaling of one entrepreneur's habits of heart and mind. The economic engine that enables that scale shapes our whole culture. Many more and smarter things have been written about the internet, especially by Gia Tolentino. But the thing that's hitting me about it now is its placelessness. It is a place where we spend so much, most, of our time. But it is a place that is too plastic and too sensitive to us to be home. It doesn't resist us, and that is how it conditions us. The New York of young Cuomo, the Oregon of young Phil Knight, the New Orleans of almost any moment since its founding, those spiky and complicated places, those homes, can get flattened and faded as we scale and optimize and scale. Federalism, by one light, is a way to resist that, to let each place call itself home and make its own house rules. But damn if any home can survive in a time like this, if we don't have systems and solidarity at scale. Nearing the 15th hurricane season since Katrina, I'm watching another disaster engulf the city. I'm thinking about Sarah Broom, who, like both of us, has spent a lot of time away, some of it on other continents, and like me, was not home when the storm hit. This is a quote. Whenever someone asked where I was from and I said New Orleans, they asked, were you there? I was not, I always said, but my family was. That absence, my not being there physically, began to register in me on subtle emotional frequencies I can see now as failure. I no longer used the word home, did not feel like I had one. How could I know what it meant? The house had burst open. I had burst open. 
Sarah Broom, the Yellow House. My grandfather passed away last week on my dad's birthday, while the case counts in the metro area exceeded those of the whole state of Colorado. I feel guilty for not being there. Then I feel stupid for feeling guilty. I'd be trapped in an apartment, zooming with friends and family to simulate intimacy there, too. There's no bend in the curve I could enact. There or not, love no closer, scale no broader. When I wrote you the first time to try to sort this out, I fell right into an old, uncomfortable trap. In trying to capture something about our most beloved place, I didn't write my own version of the Yellow House. I wrote the Jazz Fest tourists to take on the city. The food, the culture, the parades, Dr. John. That take isn't inaccurate. It's just flat and loveless. Maybe flat isn't quite right. Maybe it's phony. I think that's closer. It's the way I talk about something when I want to prove that it belongs to me. When the place of true love and power is to sit in the ways that I belong to it. There's a defense of identity, of status, set in motion in the first way of speaking. There's a building of story, of relationships in the second. After you pointed out my phoniness, I started thinking about the other ways I've seen and practiced it lately. Since moving out here a couple of years ago, I found myself experiencing a Cuomo feeling, running the streets of Aurora and Adams County with you, driving into the purple sky and orange buttes of New Mexico, discovering the regional inflections of the San Luis Valley, eating buku chilies, going to California for the first time as an adult. I was struck with how crazy big and diverse this place, the U.S., is. Scale! And I felt a renewed and troubled sense of love for it. I couldn't find a better name for that love than patriotism. When I excavated that love a little, I found it carved into shape by repulsion and resentment. I'm repulsed by a certain right-wing version of patriotism, which offers a flat, ahistorical, and ignorant account of the country as the unalloyed champion of freedom with a capital F. And I'm resentful of a certain leftist rejection of patriotism, which seems to concede the premise of the other version and would deny me my own little glow of appreciation for our country, as complicated and brutal as it can be. So here's my front porch hot take. Maybe what has happened is that patriotism has shifted over time from love of country to love of patriotism. Instead of loving the country the way you love it, devouring archives of folk music, threading yourself into place as tightly as possible, taking Swiss watchmakers' tools to local policy, putting on costumes and touching people, we fall back on catchphrases and symbols and argue about the proper deployment of those. We theorize and litigate our love instead of living it. I see myself caught in this kind of phoniness elsewhere. I worry that millennial white people, like me, transpose loving black people and loving theories about black people, or loving theories about empowerment of black people. Those aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they might require each other, but they also aren't the same. Our political tribe has gotten so enmeshed in something like the theology of race that we aren't paying due attention to the ways love and community are actually built in those spaces you delight in more than most anyone I know. Families and friendships, church basements and dive bars and local radio, in the thousand little decisions between two people for kindness or indifference, those innumerable little bids for affirmation, the fragile cadence of, are we good? We good. The places where people are building something together, stories, relationships, rather than defending something individual, identity, status. In the words of a certain light bulb inventor, Everyday life must be the convincing power. Leaving home means reckoning with an imagined and remembered home, 
you pointed out to me, fresh and sharp as always, that how we do that matters. If Colorado were to remake one of those campy license plates emblazoned with a state slogan, I think it has a fair claim to the canine state. The dogs seem to outnumber the children here, even now, when it's an even fight because the kids aren't in school all day. When you and I were running the streets here a couple summers ago, there were no peddlers signs on doors, which was hilarious, but the more effective deterrent to political canvassers like us had four legs. In Commerce City, the packs of chihuahuas raced to the chain-link fences like paparazzi, somehow united and chaotic at once. In Pueblo, they are pit bulls with stressed chains and sloppy cartoon jaws. In Congress Park and Cheeseman Park and Capitol Hill and Denver, they are purebred shadows whose voices echo off the raised ceilings. It's a dog-loving place. I was never really a dog person before coming here. I always found cats more interesting. Dogs, to me, were like Tom Hanks. Cats were like drag queens. They both had their charms. But girl, give me the glam. That changed over the last year while I lived with my friend Ida. You would love her. She pays attention to things like floor patterns in New York libraries and her adopted boxer, Ruby. Watching the two of them up close, I got to learn about that good love, that dog love. I saw in Ruby the eccentricity that always delighted me about cats, but all the hilarity was channeled into devotion instead of display or deceit. Like a lot of boxers, Ruby carries herself like a lapdog, even though she's big enough to bruise you just by putting her paw down on your arm or foot. She loves to sit on you when you're on the couch, shutting everything out from your field of vision except her brindle coat and trembling jowls. She stands watch. She's a little like the imaginary Cuomo I've created for myself hostile to any threatening force, welcoming to anyone who might join the family. The border of her country is a mighty wall, but it is made of sugar. And I'm hardly the first to write about it, but when I saw her in the early days of the pandemic, her obliviousness to that awful nucleus of fact was a relief to me. She wanted to be held. She wanted to run. She wanted to kick up the sweet debris of the wall we broke down a year ago. She wanted all the joys of home all at once. Me too, Ruby. Me too. Red beans and ricely yours, Eric. All right, fam. That's episode one. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.